Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to the Book Collector podcast. Both the Golden Cockerel Press and Eric Gill are illustrious names in the world of books. In this Book Collector podcast, Robert Gibbons writes of his collaboration with Gill. It was published in the Book Collector issue for summer 1953. Memories of Eric Gill When in January 1924 I became owner of the Golden Cockerel Press, the Society of Wood Engravers, of which I am a founder member, had been in existence for a little over three years, and many artists were turning their attention to this rediscovered medium. It was, therefore, but natural that I should concentrate my efforts on books to be decorated by this new school of wood engravers. To this end, I wrote to several of the artists telling them of my plans and inviting their cooperation. Strangely enough, in view of later events, the only one to reject my invitation was Eric Gill. He wrote a very nice letter, but gave several reasons for refusal, the chief of which appeared to be that I was not a Catholic. But a few months later there came to me a letter from my friend John Wilson of Messrs Bumpus, in which he suggested that I should print a selection of poems by Enid Clay, a sister of Eric Gill, adding that her brother would do some engravings for the volume. This idea fitted in very happily with my programme, and in April 1925, Sonnets and Verses was not only printed and published, but was chosen by the Double Crown Club as the best printed book of the year. From then on, Eric forgot his prejudices, and a happy collaboration began which only ended when, with his son-in-law, he entered into printing and publishing on his own account under the style of Haig and Gill. In the printing of sonnets and verses, there was little that could be called planning between artist and printer. The author sent me her manuscript, Eric sent me his blocks, and I put them together as best I could. And in the books that followed soon after, such as The Song of Songs and The Passion, decorated for me by Gill, there was not, as far as I can remember, a great deal, if any, of the close cooperation that came later. My memory is that in Song of Songs, and possibly also in The Passion, I may have sent Eric proofs of the type in galley slips and asked him to paste them up as he thought fit with the illustrations that he had already engraved. But in none of these volumes was there any real marriage of wood and metal. The blocks and the type had little more than a brotherly-sisterly relationship. That is to say, the designing and cutting of the wood did not await the setting of the type. Apart from a few instances, such as the title pages of the four volumes of the Canterbury Tales, there was little of the ideal partnership that was achieved in the four Gospels. It is of this last, and of how it came into being, that I particularly want to write. My earliest memory of the making of this volume concerns the text. Eric, as a Catholic, suggested that we should use the Douay translation. I said that as a non-Catholic, I would prefer the authorised version. Authorised by whom? asked Eric. King James? I said. What authority had he? asked Eric. Eventually, however, having lodged his protest, he agreed that we should follow the King James version. On general principles, Eric preferred small books, while my natural tendency was towards large ones. 
but in this case there was no need for discussion because the new type, golden cockerel face, that he had designed for me had already been delivered and being in 18 point could not have been used on a page of other than generous proportions. Eric left the format and the typography entirely to me, his only suggestions being that we should print the poetry in verse form and that the lines of prose should not be justified. His argument in favour of the latter course was that even spacing between the words, and hence even colour on the page, more than compensated for the ragged right-hand edge of the unjustified lines. While agreeing about the poetry, I was doubtful about the other proposition, and I am now sorry that I agreed to it. But Eric felt strongly on the matter, and as he had designed the type, I thought it only fair that he should have his way. But there was no serious argument. I remember our standing together in the press room at Walton St. Lawrence. He in his homemade smock, and with a home-rolled cigarette in his hand, and each of us urging that the decision should be according to the other's wishes. You are the printer, said Eric. It's only a suggestion of mine. It is for you to say. You are the artist, I replied. If you would like that form of setting, then it must be so. And Eric, always gentle in his manner, even when his feelings were strong, pressed me again to have my way. And I, in turn, reiterated that it must be as he wished. Before the setting was begun, we went through each gospel together, planning where the emphasis of illustration should fall. We felt that the opening pages of each gospel must have a large, if not a full, page block. We felt that at least one crucifixion, and such subjects as the entombment in St. Luke and the risen Lord in St. John, should be similarly treated. He asked that I should allot about half a page to such passages as the entry into Jerusalem and the agony in the garden in St. Matthew, the feeding of the 5,000 and the dancing of Salome in St. Mark, the Annunciation and the carrying to the sepulchre in St. Luke. He mentioned other places where if the type fell right, he would like to do a smaller ornament. If two of the more important subjects came rather close together in one gospel, then one of them could be left over to a succeeding narrative. We had at the press, beside the 18-point size of the face that he had designed, titling in 24 and 36-point. And in this connection, an interesting detail concerning the design of the type occurs to me. Messrs. Castle had cut the punches and cast the type, 18-point capitals and lowercase, and on receipt of this I had ordered 24-point titling from the same designs. But when this arrived, we found that it lacked something of the distinction of the 18-point. The thicks and thins had lost a little of their balance in the larger size. And yet, the work was mathematically correct. It was an interesting demonstration to us both that mathematics and aesthetics do not always agree, and that one of the greatest changes you can make in a design is to alter its scale. For the 36-point titling, which I commissioned soon afterwards, Eric worked again on his designs, reducing the weight of the horizontals to those of the verticals, and so retrieved the lost elegance of the design. The next stage in the work devolved entirely upon me. Before any blocks could be cut, the type had to be set, for type is an austere and unyielding medium. With only three sizes of capitals, its potentialities of manoeuvre were more limited than usual. From the beginning, 
we both realized that the type must be in command of the page. And so it came about that I would spend hours with the compositors while they worked out the chapter headings or other occasions for decoration. Generally, we would begin on the right of the page with a few words in the 36 point, set in short lines of perhaps half or a third of the measure. From the 36 point, we would drop to the 24 point for another few short lines, and then, having achieved a blank shape on the left of the page that seemed to offer possibilities to the artist for his initial letters, we would continue for a few full lines in 18 point capitals. From then on, it would be straightforward capitals and lowercase until we reached the next site for a decoration. We had no rules for the putting together of these varied sizes of capitals. We allowed the type almost complete control, improvising the tune according to the notes suggested. It came about, therefore, that almost every blank space left for the artist was different. And that is one reason, I believe, for the liveliness which runs through the book. It would be false modesty if I did not here admit that I like the book. I am sorry that I did not make the pages just a fraction taller in proportion to their width, my fault entirely. I am sorry that I did not justify the lines, only partly my fault. But otherwise, I feel that my seven years of apprenticeship before I began work on the Gospels were not spent in vain. May I here interpolate that I would gladly see destroyed at least half of what I produced in those years, just as I would leap with delight through a bonfire of three-quarters of the books that at one time or another I have illustrated. But to return to the Gospels, Eric was the perfect collaborator. I call him by his Christian name because that was what he liked. Mr. Gill to acquaintances, Eric to his friends. A surname was to him a mere indication of the tribe to which a man belonged. His Christian name had been given to him personally. When the pages of type had been set up as I have described, I would send him proofs, and on those he would build his designs, fitting his figures to the spaces determined by the type and allowing his fancy to spread into any quarter that offered itself. In the beheading of John the Baptist in St. Matthew's Gospel, the sword of the executioner fits close outside the type area. The leaf in Salome's hand fills the narrow niche between the two paragraphs. Unless the type had been set first, we could not have achieved such a chord. Like many another man who was supreme at his job, Eric was essentially modest and was always ready to listen to another's ideas. When, for example, I suggested that for the miraculous draft of fishes, a capital N with a fish hanging from the prolonged serif of the letter might be an appropriate accent of colour, he jumped at the idea and developed my simple pencil scratch into a delightful engraving. The setting of the pages was by no means straightforward. Again and again it needed considerable manoeuvring to develop the spaces for decoration in suitable places on the pages. A verse that Eric specially wished to illustrate might fall at the foot of the right-hand page, if the block were put on that page, through the relevant verses over leaf, if the block were put over leaf, it was equally separated from its text. Almost the only course, then, was to work backwards over the pages and find a place where an extra block would push forward the right number of lines. I had trouble with the pages immediately before the agony in the garden on page 69, as Eric wished to begin that passage with a large then on the top of a page. 
Unfortunately, the verses just preceding finished a few lines from the bottom of their page, and because there was already a comparatively large block on page 66, I felt that any further engraving would overload the pages. Then it occurred to me that if, with a small initial, I put the words of consecration, now used in the communion service, into caps, it would throw forward the text sufficiently to fill the page, and so it came about. Eric, as I have said, was the perfect collaborator. He was always ready to accept a suggestion, as he was always capable of carrying it into a wonderful fruition. Not only was he modest about his capabilities, but modest also about the prices he asked for his work. To recall but one instance, I have a clear mental picture of him sitting on the divan in my studio when we were budgeting for the Canterbury Tales. Apart from the title pages for the four volumes, we had planned a number of blocks, all of approximately the same size, which could be transposed in varying repetitions. Well, said Eric, there are so many blocks of such and such a size, that means a total of so many inches with that kind of design. I can engrave a square inch in so long, and at so much an hour, the total can't come to so much. I cannot now remember what the figure was, but I do remember that it fell about 15 or 20 pounds short of one of the hundreds. Let's make it even money, I said. Oh, that's jolly generous of you, said Eric. In fact, I thought I was getting a jolly good bargain and had a pang of conscience that I hadn't offered more. Our agreements were scarcely more than a scrap of paper on which one or other of us had scribbled the details. Those were idyllic days. It was my boast then, and I am still happy to think of it, that I never had a formal agreement with an artist or an author who worked for me, and I never had a disagreement. With Eric in particular, the collaboration worked smoothly. He was tremendously conscientious about delivery, and when he gave me a date for a block, I could answer the postman's knock on that particular morning with the assurance that there would be put into my hand a parcel addressed in Eric's precise calligraphy. He did some splendid work for his own firm in later years, but I like to think that those engravings that he did for our edition of the Gospels were the greatest he ever produced. That was Memories of Eric Gill, written by Robert Gibbings and published in the Book Collector in the summer of 1953. Tune in next week for another Book Collector podcast. And in the meantime, visit thebookcollector.co.uk to read online articles, view booksellers' catalogues, and subscribe to our journal. It's less than the price of a Netflix subscription and far more valuable. Receive four beautiful quarterly issues, plus get access to our entire digital archive. 70 years of erudite articles, illustrations, reviews, news, obituaries, auction reports and more. Everything you could want to know about book collecting. Whether you're researching, learning or just browsing for fun, it's the place to go. Visit thebookcollector.co.uk today.